While I have devoted my life to ending abortion, and I believe that a singular focus on abolishing abortion is perfectly justified and honorable, I also care about the baby's natural rights this side of the womb, too. After the right to life is secured and protected for the unborn child, the very next natural right that child has is a right to be raised by the two individuals responsible for their existence. Obviously, this does not mean keeping children with dangerous and unfit biological parents. It should therefore come as no surprise that when a culture and individual denies the natural right to life from which all rights flow to a child, they will be just as quick and eager to deny the unaborted and now born child a natural right to their parents. Whether it's abortion, third-party reproduction, surrogacy, or gay couples adopting, the underlying principle is the same. Without being able to consent, the child is forced to give up their natural rights so that adults can realize their desires. And I've been speaking out more against surrogacy and third-party reproduction, and I've been pissing off some of my social media followers, but I care too much about truth to not offend you. So we brought back on my good friend Katie Faust today, um, the uh, founder of Them Before Us, with her wonderful book, Them Before Us, which I encourage you to read. We had her on in June, but if you missed that episode, you're a new listener to the show, or you wanted to dive deeper into these ideas, Buckle up, this will be a fascinating conversation and it'll equip you to stand for the natural rights of those the most unable to speak up and defend their own rights. I'm Seth Gruber and this is Unaborted. Katie, welcome back to the show. Really good to be with you again. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I... I uh, I'm, I told you last time that I just didn't realize how much I was going to piss people off um, when I joined you in, in really taking a hard moral stance against surrogacy and third-party reproductive technologies. I know what a, a god sex is to the culture and our, how we've convinced ourselves that we can separate consent to sex from consent to pregnancy. Uh, and we've convinced ourselves that we have the right to enjoy certain aspects of sex um, without the responsibilities. But I didn't realize that, that had, you kind of had the flip side of that in the church, that we should be able to have children without the sex, and we yeah. should be able to rearrange the moral and scientific and biological puzzle pieces however we want in order to fulfill our, our desires. I didn't realize how deeply that was running in the church and even in the pro-life movement. So anyway, so I, I poked the hornet's nest a few times and I thought it would be good to have you back on and, and maybe refine our conversation a little bit um, and talk about some of these objections we receive from well-meaning pro-life Christians who I think just haven't thought through these ideas. But before we do, can you give us just a little bit of a recap, Katie, for new listeners to the show? What, what are we talking about when we talk about surrogacy and third-party reproductive technology? Some of the younger listeners to this show, they might not even know what we're talking about. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so first of all, um, them before us. What does that mean? It means them, the children, before us, the adults. And the good news is we have hundreds of incredible pro-life organizations that are fighting for children's right to life. We have awesome platforms like yours that are solely devoted to ending abortion and making sure that the right children, um, the right to life is, that's incredible. It's critical. Um, we don't have any organizations that are devoted, solely devoted to defending children's right on this side of the womb, especially when it comes to their primary relationships and that those are their mother and father. So that is what them before us is about is in matters of marriage and family, 
everything that has to do with marriage and family. We prioritize them, the children, before us, the adults. Specifically, their natural right to their mother and father before our desires for our family. And um, you're exactly right. Um, if you want to feel the full force of somebody's um, rage, stand between an adult and what they want sexually, right? They'll throw <laughs> everything that they've got at you, right? And I know you've experienced some of that in the abortion debate, right? That um, this is such a such a sensitive subject um, because it feels like what you're stopping them from doing is something they really, really want. And um, that is very true in the marriage and family arena as well. Um, you know, we see it. And, and like you said, you didn't know that so many people would be angry. Well, I remember I was at the Heritage Foundation a couple of years ago doing a panel and um, talking about everything, you know, how reproductive technologies, third-party reproduction te technologies is not a viable option for believers and Christians or even adult, just general adults um, yeah. for anybody, right? And someone says, well, that's really offensive to heterosexual couples. And I'm like, give me enough time, I'll piss you off too. There is not <laughs> one adult group who is not challenged, who is not going to have to sacrifice something to prioritize them before us. And I, so I just said, like, at Heritage, give me enough time, I'll piss you off. I will. Okay. <laughs> Every adult, this, this worldview of children coming before adults makes demands on all of us. And so that's why it's difficult. But it also is the message that very likely could save the world. Yeah, yeah. Amen. Well, because it's the posterity of the world, right? And, yeah, and if you're going to... Defend the most vulnerable when we live our lives in a way that ensures they're thriving, then we actually fix most of the major social issues that we are facing in this country today, right? So we That's spend right. the first chapter of our book talking about how 90% of homeless youth are fatherless, 67% of kids that commit suicide are fatherless, you know, 63% of teen pregnancies are girls right. who are fatherless, behavioral mm -hmm. disorders, kids who are in institutions, uh, correctional institutions, poverty. Right. I mean, every single issue that we are struggling and throwing billions of dollars to fix ultimately right. comes down to one adult or both who had a responsibility to conform their life to the right of that child didn't. Right. And if you yeah. could, you understand, like it could save our, could save our nation. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's interesting, Katie, that even within pro-life conservative circles, <laughs> right? So not, not a culture of death versus a culture of life debate, but even in an in-house debate amongst conservative pro-lifers, there's an obvious acknowledgement and recognition of the fact that the family is the building block of society. And the very people who get pissed off at you and me when we take a hard line against surrogacy and third-party reproductive technologies will acknowledge this. They will be the first ones to say, <clears throat> family is the building block of society. If you get that right, you'll get many other things right, and you'll solve many other things that are wrong. But I, I, I just thought just occurred to me, Katie, just as the culture of death has a very strange Gnostic, bigoted view of the unborn, such that they say um, they're only valuable when the last toe slips out of the vaginal canal. And then when that last toe leaves the birth canal, look, it's a person now. It's a very Gnostic, stupid, weird thing. But you know what? There's, there's a less intense but equally strange version of that in pro-life conservative circles. And it goes something like this. Anything that happens to the child short of dismemberment in the womb won't affect them. Mm. Now, we acknowledge that, that what a child goes through in their early stages of life is significant 
and formative to who they will become, how they'll function, and whether they'll be healthy or not. But pro-life Christians and conservatives, sometimes they do a very similar thing that the pro-abort does. Rather than saying it's not a valuable person or doesn't have a right to life, they say, eh, whatever we do while the child's in the womb short of killing them, it's not that big of a deal, right? Hey, Katie, God's given us lots of ways to create families. And, and if someone else can get a baby that way, what's their assumption? Whatever's happening to the child in the womb, it's not affecting them. It's only when they're infants or toddlers that those types of family decisions will affect them. It's kind of a strange thing, and that's what I've been sort of realizing and pushing up against recently. Yeah, and you know, we, we are ready to have a little more sophisticated thought process. In fact, the world and the way it's moving and um, the ways that we are creating children in laboratories demands that um, Christians, conservatives, pro-lifers, and generally responsible adults better understand exactly what's going on and the importance that it has to children. And the good news is um, this is a seamless garment, okay? When you are pro-life and you wanna be pro-child, um, there is a seamless argument that is going to run between being pro-child from conception um, to rejecting reproductive technologies. Um, and a lot of times, you know, because this is a new concept for so many people, you know, they freak out and they're like, but I thought you were pro-babies. Well, I thought you loved babies. Well, um, you can't critique abortion because if you critique abortion, I'm sorry, you can't critique adoption and talk about the harms or challenges of adoption because if you do, people are going to choose more abortion. Okay. No, we need to do it all. We need to have the yeah. best case, right? And that means being able to grapple with some of the nuances and complexities, okay? But yeah. what the other side does is they oversimplify. They're the world of talking points. Those are the ones of slogan. We're the ones that are living in real life with the real studies right. and statistics and natural law. And that means that we can grapple with the complexities and still come out with a very holistic view, a non, yeah. uh, one that does not have any contradictions to it, right? But oversimplifying things doesn't help anybody, right? We need to yeah. be able to grapple with it. Really, really what's going on. Um, and, you know, yeah. you will be on the right side of history when you really are on the right side of natural law. And when it comes That's to right. the pro-life debate and when it comes to children's rights to their parents, yeah. natural law is on our side. Yeah, well, and you know, Katie, they've done studies on this about how the conservative most often has a very deep understanding of the left their philosophies, their ideas, and their undergirding principles. For, for the most part, the right understands the left. Um, but when we speak, the left goes, and there's drool coming out of their mouth. I mean, they have literally no idea what we're talking about. And they've, I mean, there's, there's research to back this up. Um, and, and, but the, my point here is actually to piggyback off of your point, which is that many conservative Christians and pro-lifers respond to us in the same way that the left responds to us when we're pro-life. But the conservative pro-lifer is as shocked at our line against surrogacy as the pro-abort is against our line against abortion. So what does that tell you? It tells you that, that the liturgy of the culture of death has been more impactful in the thinking of Christians than natural law and yeah. the recognition of its source, God. And so that's why I want to dive into more of the minutiae here and really refine our thinking here for people uh, for whom this debate is new. Um, but again, before I do that, Katie, again, I, I want to just, I want you to give some brief explanations of some basic understandings of this debate for the young listeners to this show and the new ones since we had you on last June or those who need a recap. Very briefly, as quickly as you can, uh, explain to us surrogacy and its mm -hmm. two primary forms. 
And then give us some examples of third-party reproductive technologies. Yes. So um, there are lots of ways to make babies in laboratories. Okay. Right. Um, I mean, like new ways almost every day. So there's so many different ways that you can create children, freeze children, fresh, frozen, um, donated, um, using your own gametes, finding somebody else's gametes, using your own womb, finding somebody else's womb, paying for it, not paying for it, you know, taking two identical children and planting them in separate women, having them birthed at the same time. Are they twins? We don't know. I mean, like there's, there's just endless ways that you yeah. can make children outside of the female body. Um, and so here's a way to simplify it. Anytime you are using a third party, whether it is the sperm of somebody from the outside of your marriage or the egg of somebody outside of your marriage or the womb of somebody outside of your marriage, okay, you are using a third party to create right. a child. Any third party means of reproduction will always violate children's rights. Okay? You are always denying them either a biological parent or the connection with the only person they know on the day that they are born, their birth mother. And both of those are egregious violations of children's rights. Both of them harm children. And so third-party reproduction is not something that should be available to anyone. From a children's right, right. from an adult's perspective, it's such a good idea. This is what I really want. I mean, I wasn't able to have children, or I wanted to delay childbearing, or I really wanted to schedule it, um, or you know, my eggs are you know not working, so I'm going to get somebody else's eggs. I'm going to try to find a woman that looks just like me because matters or whatever. Okay. From an adult's perspective, third-party reproduction, great. From a child's perspective, never, never. Right. It will always harm children. It always violates their rights. So right. third-party reproduction um, is just using a third party to create a child um, and separate them from someone they have a natural right to. So right. that's kind of overall. Now, um, we had sperm donation for a long time because sperm's pretty easy to get to. Uh, egg donation kind of exploded and you know, the last 20 years because eggs are harder to get to and um, and takes a lot, it's, it takes quite a heavy toll on a woman's body to stimulate her ovaries to the point where they're not releasing one egg a month, but they're releasing 20 maybe. Right. Uh, because if you're gonna go on there and extract them, you don't want just one, you're gonna need 20 because you're gonna have to figure out which ones are the most viable. And, you know, especially after you combine it with whatever sperm wow. you're going to use, you're gonna need to select, do you want the male embryos, the female embryos? Well, these ones have genetic markers of, mm, let's a little shady, let's let these go. Um, right. And, you know, let's develop them to a certain degree, and then let's analyze, you know, which ones look like they're the healthiest and the most viable. And um, people don't understand that anytime you're making babies in a laboratory, only 7% of those babies will be born alive. Only 7%. Wow. Okay, most are either going to be discarded, and this is maybe using your own gametes, maybe using the gametes of a third party, but this is not a child-friendly process, okay? Any way that you're doing this, it's not child-friendly. Most of those babies, um, once they've been created, will spend some amount of time in a freezer. Many will never escape the freezer. Wow. Many of them will be thawed and discarded. Another, you know, 20% will be donated to research. Um, right. Some of them will be selectively reduced in the womb, right? That would be aborted. Yeah. In the womb, yep. that is standard language for surrogacy contracts is to, yep. um, you know, selective reduction um, serves as quantity control and quality control when it comes to purchased pregnancies. Um, so this is not, um, you know, for the pro-life world, um, we look at this and we think babies, we love babies, and we do love babies. Um, but what surrogacy, what, what 
what surrogacy specifically is, is not babies. It's on-demand designer babies shipped worldwide. That's really what, what it is, okay? Right. Um, and so we spend a lot of time talking about surrogacy in our book. We cover it completely in chapter eight. We talk about these dystopic scenarios um, right. of, of predatory men who are specifically creating children to abuse in a surrogate. Horrible things happen to children when you commercially separate them from their mothers. Yeah. Okay? Yeah. It's, there's no regulation. Yeah. There's, no, there's no regulation. We spent a lot of time contrasting adoption, which is a child-centric institution with reproductive technologies, which is an adult-centric marketplace yeah. in her yeah. book. And that's one of the main differences is adults like me who, who want to be adoptive parents have to go through yeah. layers yeah. and layers of screening and vetting, um, right. you know, past background checks, in surrogacy yeah. and reproductive technologies, your check has to clear. That's the yeah. check that you have to pass, right? And that's all. So um, please learn about it. Um, and then especially read the stories of kids who have been created through third-party reproduction and look at how they've suffered. Yeah. Look at how they long for their biological identity. Look at how they feel commercialized and purchased yeah. because they were, yeah, that's right. Look at how they grapple with the fact that many of these kids created through sperm donation, especially have dozens or hundreds of half siblings that they'll never know. Yeah. Look at how long they spend on the internet searching for their missing parent. Look at how they yeah. feel like eugenics played a role in their creation because Yeah, because it did. Okay, so yeah, yeah. you have to start looking at this. I mean, we've done a really good job in the pro-life world of looking at abortion from the perspective of children. We have to take that same lens and look at it um, when it comes to marriage and family as well. Yeah, yeah. And I want to dive into some objections to the mm -hmm. very points you just made from pro-life conservatives who would go, no, 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 Katie, th yeah, that form is bad. But this form over here is okay. Uh, but before I do, just for you guys listening to this, you hear me talk all the time on this show about the natural right to life of the unborn. And if you don't get that right right, you won't get any other rights right. That is the most fundamental right. And that's why our founders put that first in our founding documents. But listen, the point we're making is that if the child has a natural right, and if natural rights exist, then there are other rights that flow from the right to life. Mm -hmm. And our founders then said liberty and the pursuit of happiness. Well, I mean, I could probably make an argument that within liberty, you could make an argument for a right to one's parents. But this is the familial structure that we're talking about. And you actually mentioned this story in your book, and I can't remember the names of the people involved, but I want to make this point before we dive into objections so that our listeners or some of those who are critical of, of what we're saying understand this. You talk about a gay couple, Katie, um, who, who were married, they got a child, but of course only one of the gay couples was the biological parent. The other gay couple was not because guess what? Men can't, men can't get pregnant. Uh, shocker. And so they get divorced. They split up, whatever it was. I don't know if they were married or not. They split up. Um, well, anyways, the other partner, the other gay dude who has no relationship to this child ends up suing and wanting the, wanting the child. And the courts put the child with the non-biologically related gay dude that has no relationship to the child rather than the biological father. Where's the mother? Who knows where the mother is? This is the culture of death. Um, and as you say, we now facilitate the tragedy of mother loss, and that's become a billion-dollar industry. Okay, my, my point in telling you guys that story, which is a horrific story, is if, if you think that surrogacy, third-party reproductive technologies, and these things are okay, um, then why would you have a problem with that? Because that's also just intent-based parenthood. 
which you make that point as well, Katie. Um, now, if you have a problem with that, with a child being put with a non-biologically related gay parent rather than their bio parent, then the only reason you could have a problem with that is if the child has a natural claim to their parent. And if the child has a natural claim to their parent, that right exists in virtue of being human. This is, this is what we mean by natural rights, that they spring from our human nature. Meaning we had those rights from the moment we began to exist, mm -hmm. the moment of conception. So you cannot turn a blind eye to the natural right of the child to the two individuals responsible for their existence simply because that child's in the womb and then suddenly be such a defender of those, that child's rights to their parents when they slip out of the birth canal. Um, yeah. th that, that would just be lunacy and, and stupid. So I, ho I hope I set that up well. But you know, people will respond, Katie, and they'll say, okay, I mean, the commodification aspect of surrogacy, yeah, I get that. And I know that white wombs are more expensive and, and black and brown wombs are cheaper. So then you end up, you end up targeting minority communities. And then the, the rich white couple are demanding that she kill some of the babies and the siblings through selective reduction and abortion. I mean, I don't like that aspect, Katie. But you know, if it's, and I know it's in vitro fertilization where you arrange a priori to create a bunch of humans knowing that you'll sacrifice some of them. Uh, and then the ones that you don't sacrifice, if too many implant, you'll just murder some of the siblings. And I know IVF is wrong, but listen, here, how about this, Katie? One IVF, so, so one um, zygote, you only conceive one baby, you do one implantation, and then the surrogate um, is just like a family or friend. And so mm -hmm. I had someone say this on my Facebook. It's like, it was my sister who volunteered, it was one baby we conceived, one implantation, the baby implanted, and now we're raising the baby. What could be wrong with that, Katie? God, God makes, he designs families in lots of different ways. Yeah, that's a great question. And so first of all, I want to point out that um, when we are hearing counter arguments, they are almost always, they pull from the exceptions. Okay, they right. always find the exceptions. And perhaps you and I will later talk about some of the other major exceptions, um, you know, that are out there in the marriage and family world. You know, when I say children have a right to their mother and father um, and, you know, married mothers and fathers should be prioritized when it comes to adoption and people are like, oh, okay, well, what about, you know, the kid who's languishing in the orphanage and um, you were saying they should stay in the orphanage rather than have gay parents. And I would love to talk that through with you, um, but they go, way, way over to the teeniest extreme, right? So right. that's what you're doing with this surrogacy case, is you have identified the very, very narrow extreme, okay, where it's, right. they're using their own gametes. There hasn't been any kind of selective reduction. There aren't biological siblings frozen in a freezer. They did not discard the non-viable that they know of. A lot of times doctors will do things. I've heard, you know, stories of people who went through IVF and then later find out that the doctors discarded some of their embryos. Um, and so let's say that they have respected this child's right to um, life and all children's right to life. Um, and they're only using their own gametes. Uh, they just need a womb. Yeah. They just need somebody else's womb. Okay, so what's the harm? All right. So let's talk a little bit about you know, you're saying, well, we talk a lot about like what matters to kids once they're born, right? Yeah, it's really important to have a mom and dad, but what happens in the womb? Does that really matter? Yeah, it absolutely right. does. Okay, so it's actually fairly common for, um, so think about, let's, let's back up and talk about something we're a little more familiar with, adoption. Okay, so adoption, um, what, what good parenting, child? I'm sorry, parent resource centers, right? These alternatives to abortion clinics, what they do a lot of is encouraging women to love their baby and bond with their baby, 
right? Talk to their baby. Very real maternal bond take place even in utero. And so we know that, right? People, doctors, prenatal doctors, um, you know, my friend Jennifer Lal, who is the global expert on surrogacy, used to be a labor and delivery nurse. And she'd say, we've talked constantly with women about before and after bonding, nurturing, loving, holding, like carrying on the bond that they had pre-birth, right? Mm -hmm. And so whenever we're not talking about surrogacy, even when we're talking about a pro-life situation where the mother is considering adoption, they're still talking about like, this is your baby, love, love, nurture, nurture, connect, connect. Mm -hmm. Suddenly, when we start talking about surrogacy, we're like, oh, there's no connection. Just somebody's <laughs> bun and somebody else's oven, right? That's it. Okay, so wow, great the thing point. is that... Um, we all have, you know, moms like me, right, who were pregnant. I had relationships with dozens and dozens of people, okay? Your baby has a relationship with one person. You're the only relationship they have. You're not only the only parent they know, you're the only person they know. You're the only connection they have in the whole world. And so you think about birth mothers who have a hard time letting go of their child, even if they feel like adoption is the best solution. We've got stories in our book about surrogates who say, this baby's not genetically related to me, but I'm not handing her over. Do you understand? Like, she's mine. I love her. I can't give her up. These are women who have lots of other relationships, but that one relationship with that one baby, that bond is so strong. Now, think yeah. about it from the other side, because that's what them before us is all about, is don't think about it from the adult's perspective. Think about it from the child's mm -hmm. perspective. Right. If mothers have that much of a bond with their baby, even though they've got lots of other options of people to have relationships with. Do you think that that baby has a significant bond with their mother when that's their only relationship? And the answer is, hell yes, they do. Okay. <laughs> and let me give you an example of from our own life, right? Um, we, my second daughter was delivered. Um, it was a rapid uh, delivery and both she and I were absolutely in shock afterwards. Like I was, I was like spinning um, and she was wailing and she was kind of purple. Like it was, it was, you know, they were waving the oxygen. She was screaming. It was chaos. Um, and then finally I snapped out of it, got my wits together. They brought her over, they put her on my chest and I started singing to her because I had a kid at home and that was right after the Prince of Egypt came out. So we were listening to the soundtrack all the time. And so I held my second daughter to my chest and I sang, Hush now, my baby, be still, love, don't cry. And just silence. Hmm. She stopped crying immediately. Why? Because she had finally found the one thing that she knew, right? She finally wow. was like, wait a second, I know this. Yeah. We do not put babies on the naked chests of random strangers so they can afford to bond. We put babies on their mother's chest because they have an existing bond. Yeah. Okay, now let's go back to this best case surrogacy scenario, which it is the best case, right? Nobody's being commercialized. The child's gonna grow right. up with their genetic parents. No child has lost their right to life. But what is it that you're doing? Okay, on the day that the baby is born, the baby, the, the, the genetic parents are just two strangers among seven billion in the world. That baby doesn't know who those adults are. They don't long for that woman's body, right? They don't know that man's smell. That paid or unpaid surrogate is the only parent that they know. So 
sometimes children lose a relationship with their birth mother due to tragedy. And interestingly, we mourn, right? Yeah. I just saw um, a news flash that, you know, seven babies, you know, a kind of political gotcha, seven babies are going to grow up without their moms because their moms refuse to take the COVID vaccine. Isn't that sad? I'm like, it is sad, but I believe your outlet just celebrated mother loss when Buttigieg and Chastin, Chastin just welcomed those babies to their home. And you didn't think that mother loss on the day of birth was a big deal at all, right? So we recognize that when babies lose their mother to tragedy, it is sad. And now on the other side, we're immediately going, but when adults want it, it's great and kids don't care. So which way is it? Do mothers and babies have a special bond? And is it sad when they lose that? Or is it something that you can just cut and paste and there's no big deal? Right. Now, we don't have long-term studies on kids created and born through surrogacy. Um, a lot of that is because we're not tracking them. They're going all over the world. There's wow. no there's no studies being done. There's no registrations happening. Um, like who knows what's happened to a lot of these kids until right. something hits the news, we don't know. But we know about adoptees. Okay, we've been doing adoption and adoption from birth for a long time. And we know that many adoptees report feeling what they describe as a primal wound from losing their mother on the day that they are born. They say that this hindered my attachment, my ability to trust, that there was always some kind of hole there, some kind of hesitancy that I had when it came to like forming relationships and connecting. And the data supports them. Right. Adoptive parents tend to be more highly educated, more wealthy, and spend more time with their children than the general population does with their kids. And yet, adoptees tend to struggle more in school and with anxiety and um, mental health issues. And so we are fools. We are fools if we think that we can just simply cut that connection with a child's only a relationship their primary relationship and that they're just going to walk away and be fine. Maybe some of them will. I mean, obviously it's going to overcome those challenges, but to inflict it intentionally, we're fools. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Wow. Wow. That was powerfully put. I appreciate you bringing that clarity and perspective um, because even though the the minutiae never, the minutiae cases never justify uh, or the minor cases, the exception never justifies the, the norm. Um, even in that case that it seems appealing and it seems okay, like some of my friends who put this on Facebook, I'm still not recognizing that the child still has a natural claim to have their social mother, their Mm -hmm. birth mother, and their bio mother all be the same woman. And from a natural law perspective, when something is a certain way in nature, rather than asking if you can tear it down, you should ask, why is it this way? Chesterton said this, right? If a man comes up to a fence in the middle of a field um, and, and it seems to have no purpose, rather than, than tearing it down, maybe you should ask why it's there first. Like, like humble yourself a little bit. Like ask the why question. Um, and if God arranges things in a certain natural order, then that means there's a reason. And if there's a reason, try to find out what that reason is. Um, another objection we get, Katie, is that we're denigrating or dehumanizing single mothers. And so I got this claim 
uh, put on my social media because I said that children have a natural right to be raised by the two individuals responsible for their existence. Yes, obviously I'm making an exception for degenerate, dangerous bio-parents because the same thing that leads me to say children have a natural right to their claim to their parents is the same thing that leads me to say if the rights of the child are being harmed by their bio-parents, they also have to be removed. Uh, so obviously, that's, that's, that's not the, I'm not saying regardless of the situation that's happening in the home. But then someone responds and says, well, Seth, you're denigrating single mothers. When you say children have a natural right to be raised by the two individuals responsible for their existence, you're, you're subtly attacking single motherhood because you're suggesting that they're not providing their kids with that. They're not doing enough. And another friend, someone I grew up with in my old church I grew up in, said uh, when she lost her husband tragically to cancer and she got remarried and she made a comment when I shared one of your posts or our, our, our conversation and said, wow, I guess I made the wrong decision getting married, huh, Seth? I guess I'm harming my kids because I'm not giving them their natural father. I find this incredibly shallow thinking, um, but it, it, it's pretty prevalent. So can you speak to that about how we're not speaking down to single mothers. We're not saying that they're not doing enough or that they shouldn't be raising their children if the dad's out of the picture. Um, we're just saying ideally it needs to be the mother and the father who created the child. But can you speak to that? Yes, absolutely. And of course, I hear all those objections as well. And let me give you a really, really easy template to lay over all of those alternative families, kind of alternative family structures. Okay. Um, then before us has one solution um, to all of these myriad situations um, for different kinds of marriage and family. Um, it's actually the same solution when it comes to being pro-life. Um, and that is that adults need to do hard things. That's the answer. In all of these cases, adults do hard things because when they do, the rights of children are protected. So uh, when it comes to single mothers, I just did a Facebook post about this a couple days ago because a single mother wrote to me, or a soon-to-be single mother, and said, I'm about to be a single mother, and I don't want my kid to suffer, um, if possible, what should I do? Um, many single mothers are single mothers because they were the only parent that was willing to do hard things, okay? That's right. So they're in that boat because the other parent chose not to do hard things. Yeah. So we are behind any adult who says, I'm going to do the hard thing. I'm going to take on a burden. I am willing to shoulder the, the load. So to spare my child loss. Now in a home, that means two adults have to do it. Okay. And sometimes only one is willing, whether that's a single parent situation, whether that's a no fault divorce situation where one parent is willing to fulfill their vows, do the hard work, um, struggle to stay together. And one's like, bye. I found a hottie online, see ya, okay? Um, and that certainly comes to the reproductive technology debate. I mean, whether you are an infertile heterosexual couple or like your friends who um, wanted to use a surrogate to have a baby, um, the answer to those questions are the same. Adults need to do hard things. You cannot ask them to sacrifice for you just because you want something. And so that is why I tell um, everyone that this is a message for everybody, single, married, yeah. gay, and straight. Everybody has to do hard things so the rights of children are protected. Now, in the case of your friend who is widowed, um, mother and father loss is not new to the human experience. Uh, we used to experience mass father loss uh, after war, for example. Uh, mothers used to routinely die in childbirth, thankfully due to modern warfare and modern medicine. Um, those losses due to tragedy are, are much lower today. Yeah. 
the issue today is parents are not being lost because of tragedy. Parents are being lost because the desires of adults are being prioritized above the rights of children. So in the single mother situation, the dad's prioritizing what he wants above the rights of the child. In a no-fault divorce situation, one of those adults often are prioritizing their own desires above the child's right and need to have mom and dad in their home loving them every day. Um, right. In the situation of reproductive technologies, you desperately want a baby with some kind of biological connection. You just can't get it without severing some of their biological connection. No big deal. Yeah. Okay. So all adults need to do hard things. And when they do, the rights of children are protected. In the case of your widowed friend, tragedy took the father of her children. And we mourn, don't we? When, all, when your children think about their lost father, everybody comes around them and mourns with them. Everybody recognizes that was a really painful loss. They can still have his picture up on the mantle. They can still remember their times together. And everybody says, what a major loss. That does not happen when children lose a parent to intentionality. Then the kids are told, you're lucky. You're so lucky that your parents That's wanted right. you enough to create you and manufacture you. You're so lucky you've got two Christmases now. You know, so there's a there are difference in kind. And adults respond differently to tragedy-based losses and desire-based losses. Right. So these are complete, these are non-issues, honestly, for this debate. We are talking about children losing their parent because some adult wanted it that way. Yeah, it's yeah, because you're arranging a missing parent, right. Uh, right? No, no single mother is like, man, I just, I just really want to arrange a missing dad. It's mm -hmm. like, no, he's a degenerate and he left, right? Um, or you had to leave him to protect you and the kids, or tragedy struck and he died some, some way. But no one would have ever said in the beginning of their marriage, man, I just can't wait to arrange a missing parent for my kids. But, right. but regardless of how much false compassion you slap over it, that's what you're doing when you opt for surrogacy or, 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 or you know, uh, sperm donation or egg donation or whatever it is. You're arranging a parent loss, a, a, a lost bio parent, a lost birth parent, uh, or both. Uh, but, and so you make a great point in your book, Katie, and I want to I quote you, paraphrase you, I don't know if I have it memorized, uh, for our listeners. But you know, we say in abortion that if the child's unwanted, you can violate the child's right to life. And then many, many Christian pro-lifers, they say, well, and then if the child's very wanted, then we can also violate their rights. That's, that's what you're saying, their right to be raised by the two individuals responsible for their existence. And I think that's, that's so beautifully put. Um, let's, let's wrap up with the, uh, with the gay marriage debate, okay? Because this came raging back onto the scene recently when Pete Buttigieg, uh, who ran for president and was uh, just hailed with the accolades uh, from the leftist regime and the theocracy that they run uh, because he's he's gay and so that somehow makes him you know a more moral authority. I mean, this is why intersectionality rots the brain. Um, but he's the mayor of, of South Bend, Indiana. <clears throat> ran for president. Is married to a man named Chasen, and they just put a Facebook post up recently celebrating the fact that they had adopted two twin babies, and they're sitting in a hospital bed. Uh, and I, I, I it's very strange. Everyone's like, well, what? What's going on there? It's not like you're tired from childbirth. Right. So, I mean, just so dystopian. Um, but this sort of blew up online. I think they were trending, and then it caused the typical gay marriage debate to happen once again between the left and the right, between woke Christians and traditional Christians, um, as, as we're all too familiar with seeing. But I, I, the point I want to make before I get your thoughts is, is yeah, duh. 
I'm not shocked at all for the same reason I said in the intro. And, and let, me, let me put this as clearly as I can, and if you, you can call me out if you think I'm being too offensive. But Pete Buttigieg and his alleged husband are both bloodthirsty, abortion-loving creeps. They both defend abortion through point of birth, Katie. They defend third trimester abortions where you literally suck the brains out of a child in the third trimester. Why, why would we be surprised that they would be okay to deny a child their right to their parents? I, I'm not surprised at all. You defend slaughtering and decapitating third trimester babies who are ready to be birthed. So, so to me, this is just the natural progression of the culture of death. Um, but the objection is, well, you know, Katie, children fare just as well when raised by gay couples. You know, actually, sometimes, Katie, they fare even better. And I have some study here from WAPO that proves my point. So just help us think through this for, for the, the, this, the very confused uh, Christians we have who have either gone on the other side and they're like, yep, Pete Buttigieg and Chasen adopting baby, this is a blessing of liberty. Uh, and then traditional Christians who feel they're like, this is not right, but maybe they don't have the language to explain sure. it. Uh, unpack this for us. Oh, yeah. Okay. There's a lot there, and I want to talk about every single thing, because that's what I do. I talk about all the things. Um, if you want my complete diagnostic about um, the Buttigieg situation, I wrote an article called Don't Celebrate the Buttigieg Twins Mother Loss, and that's at LifeSite News. And it is Great. packed with links Good. and studies and stories and rebuttals and commentary. Awesome. Um, we'll put a link to that. Total toolkit on thinking through that scenario and we don't really know if they were adopted. Um, let me just right. say that the waiting list for white newborn twins uh, is <laughs> decades long. And, um, you know, they had just been talking in July, like Chasten had said in a Washington Post interview, you know, we've been anonymously, like we haven't disclosed who we are trying to adopt. And we've had all these, you know, sadnesses and one fell through. and magically after he revealed their identity, they're sitting in a hospital with newborn twins. So either a woman in her third trimester is like, ooh, I could give my babies to a famous couple, or Gosh. they are they created the children through surrogacy, which you know increases the likelihood of twins to like 40%. So either way, this is uh, poaching. I, I, that's, that's how it looks to me, okay? In either right. one of these situations, some, some vulnerable woman took on some risk and and um, and was it looked exploitive to me either way. So, um, yeah. but let's talk about same-sex parenting. So, in our book, we begin chapter one with children's rights. We do spend an entire section um, linking children's right to life with children's right to their mother and father. Like I said, this is a seamless garment. You do one, you need to do the other. There's no contradiction between these; they go hand in hand. If you're pro-child, you need to do both. Okay. Chapter two, we talk about why biology matters in the parent-child relationship. Okay, for two main reasons. Number one, the biological parents offer something to the child no other adult can give them, and that is biological identity, right? It tells children in many ways who they are, and kids who do not have it often struggle with identity issues. Yeah. Number two, it furnishes children with statistically the safest adults in their life, okay? Yeah. And I know that's offensive. Sorry. It's offensive, and it's true. And we yeah. willingly place children at risk when we ignore the reality that Biology in the parent-child relationship offers significant protection for kids. Number three, gender matters. Chapter three is all about why moms and dads are different. Men and women offer distinct and complementary benefits to child rearing, okay? So, and then we talk about mother and father loss. There is trauma, harm, and diminished outcomes when a child loses a parent to death, divorce, abandonment, or reproductive 
technologies. So this is my question. Whenever you are studying family structure, you are not talking about same-sex parenting. Sociologists agree on every single one of those. There is no debate among sociologists, among family structure researchers, that biology matters in the parent-child relationship, that gender matters in the family structure, moms and dads matter, and that children are harmed, it's traumatic, and they have diminished outcomes when they lose a parent. Mm. Now, something magical takes place when you study same-sex parenting, right? Those studies that you said, there's like 75, there's some, oh, I yeah, should know yeah. it, um, some, some, <laughs> some college put together, like here's the 75, and they all say the kids fare even better. There, there's no difference. Okay, why is it that when a child is raised in a same-sex-headed household, and they're always losing, they always have lost a biological parent, they, by definition, will not have the mother and father love that they crave and benefit from. And they will right. always have suffered the trauma of parental loss. Why is it that magically those kids bear no different? Why? Hmm. And the answer is those no different studies are deeply flawed methodologically. Yeah. We spend the first half of chapter six in our book digging down and investigating those studies and the methods that they use. Um, right. Some gay marriage supporter who was pushing back on a thread that uh, Lila Rose retweeted um, my diagnostic of the Buttigieg situation and some pro-gay um, journalist, you know, said, more news from Italy about how kids with same-sex parents fare even better, right? <laughs> and we talk about that study in our book. <clears throat> the method that those Italian researchers used when they surveyed the gay fathers, the lesbian mothers, and the heterosexual couples was literally how do you feel like you're doing as parents? Are you doing good? And <laughs> the gay parents are like, we are nailing this. Our kids are so happy. We are really good parents. And the heterosexual couples did not respond as positively. They're like, yeah, this is some challenges, right? And so what we say in our book is in realville, those results just mean heterosexual parents are more honest about their parenting, right? <laughs> yeah. But that does not in any way survey whether or not the kids are okay and whether or not they're right. doing well or thriving. You actually yeah. cannot build a survey based on self-response if you wanted right. to have some statistical significance. You have to actually measure the outcomes of kids. And yeah. uh, we only have a handful of studies that do that, especially when pulling kids at random, not recruiting or right. asking for volunteers. I mean, the methodology, this is not the rigorous, um, you know, Yeah. This is not the methodology that tells you gold standard yeah. of science here. It's not, right? Yeah. This is, yeah. let's find some people that validate our political conclusions and then wrap yeah. them up in the study. So That's there really should be no questions, debates about this. Um, nature gets it right, whether if you're gonna go from the, um, you know, kind of evolutionary perspective, God gets it right. If you're coming from a religious perspective, um, the two people that make a baby are in the best position to raise that baby, especially if they do it every day together all, yeah. all day long. Yeah, that's right. <clears throat> and let me add to that too, Katie, the voices of the children, many of whom are now adults, who were raised by gay parents, either two dads or two moms. It's so interesting, Katie. I just, I just don't understand why CNN and Anderson Cooper 
like why they won't have these uh, adult children on to talk about their experiences. I, I just so strange. But of yeah. course, the, the mainstream media, the activist media, which I call journalistic prostitutes for the party of death, they don't want to hear these voices. They go out of their way to silence these voices. Yeah. And so you have a two-pronged problem, actually, to get the really good, honest um, stories of these children and, and the results is that, one, they don't want their name to sometimes go on something because they do love their gay parents, even though they felt that they were deprived of a mother or a father. So they don't want to be, uh, they don't want them to learn that they were in a study saying, yeah, it, it sucked not having a mom in the home. And then on top of that, you have the cancel culture and the silencing and the ostracizing going on of those adult children who were told that if they feel like they wanted a mom, they were wrong to want that uh, because law is a teacher, or as Aristotle said, statecraft is soulcraft. Laws through its policies prescribe which type of behavior or is acceptable or not acceptable in a civilized society. So when you redefine marriage and say it's just an emotional union and if you really love someone, it's the same thing, you're telling the adult children of those gay couples that they're wrong to feel yep. like they were deprived of something. That's um, right. So, but I wanted to add, go, yeah, go, go ahead. Something about the stories. Um, that's one thing that Them Before Us does that nobody else does is we catalog the stories of kids who were intentionally deprived of mother or father, especially when it comes to this with same-sex parents. Our website is the only place, the largest bank of stories of kids with LGBT parents, because mm. and we have wow. specifically created that safe space because it is so risky for these kids to yeah. tell the truth. And so we offer them a platform um, where they can be honest and we will yeah. hide their identity. So yeah. you're going to get, that's where you're going to get the raw story from them. Um, and then on the subject, like what you're saying about um, kids thinking, I must be wrong for feeling this way. We talk a lot about that in the book. Um, and we share the story of my friend Millie in Australia, who had two moms, had massive identity issues, huge, huge struggles. And with all different kinds of her development and um but mainly just i mean she told me the story because we visited um we went to the australian um we talked to her members of parliament together in australia several years ago and she oh, told right. the story to her own legislators of how she would stay up after everyone to sleep and and grab the family photo albums and just flip through and like who looks like me does anyone is there a man in here that looks like me i can't find wow. anyone that looks like me and this is when she's like six or seven right there was wow. just these deep identity issues longing and finally she was so distressed that her mothers took her to a therapist and the therapist said, do you want your daughter to be well? And they said, of course. And she said, you better find her father and introduce her fast. And so Whoa. they did, right? It was, it ended up being I think, a family friend from college or something like that. And she wow. said, the day that I met my father was the first day that I was, I felt like a stable child. Mm. Um, and she was 11. Okay, an 11 year old is going, this is what I needed to satisfy my soul. So then when gay marriage was being debated in Australia, her mother said to her, I just think that all of that would have been better if you know your two mothers could have been married. That would have solved the problem. And Millie said, really? Uh, because what would my therapist have said to you back then if, if to diagnose my father loss would have been a form of discrimination? Because that's what it is now. Right now, saying that children should have a mother and father yeah. constitutes Wild. discrimination. And right. so, no, I didn't need my mothers to be married. I needed my father. And now I don't know right. if there would even be allowed to say that. Right. Yeah, yeah. Well, how many stories has Hollywood told, Katie, of adopted children going on a journey? 
to find their bio parent or bio parents, right? Uh, but if you go on a journey to find your bio parent that you were denied by two gay couples who adopted you, then you're a bigot and yeah. you're probably just a Trump supporter. It's disgusting. Uh, the attack on natural rights uh, at every turn, um, which is ultimately just an attack on God himself. We want things our way. Uh, and that goes right back to Genesis 3 in the garden. Uh, let's wrap up with this. Uh, the last objection um, in, in the assault against children's rights or in, in from the woke Christians or progressives who champion these different ways to arrange parenthood. People say, well, so you're opposed to gay people being happy, right? You, obviously, you're opposed to them having a family. So are you'd be willing to take that so far, Katie, that you'd be willing to deny children a home even if there's no one else to adopt them and they're being passed over and they're not wanted just so that you can keep them out of a gay home? Why are you such a bigot, Katie? What, yeah. do, you, what do you say to that? These days, everyone's a bigot, right? If you do not get on board, <laughs> ever moving progressive left, they'll find a reason to call you a bigot too. So, um, okay, so let's give some really clear, easy to remember guidelines. Third party reproduction is a no for everybody, right? Okay? You always are forcing a child to sacrifice for you. Third-party reproduction in every form. Sperm donation, egg donation, surrogacy is a violation of the rights of children. It is right. off limits for single, married, gay, and straight. It is a violation of children's rights. That's no right. adult should be doing it, period. Okay. I oppose the sweet Christian heterosexual couple who's using third-party reproduction just as much as I oppose the gay couple who is renting a woman's womb. Okay. Right. So on all of those all those questions third party reproduction is no now let's talk about adoption okay we need a we need a clear understanding of what adoption is we spend chapter 9 of our book talking about adoption and we begin with adoption first of all begins with loss for children they have to lose something that they have a natural right to to be in a position to need adoption and that is tragic sometimes it's necessary if there is an abusive biological parent, um, if it's a neglect, abandonment, if they're genuinely orphaned. Um, in this broken world, adoption will sometimes be necessary. Right. But we must adoption is not a way for adults to get kids. Adoption is a way that a just society furnishes a family with a child who needs one. Okay. So it is a child-centric institution. This is not about what adults want. This is about what children need. So when we think about adoption from a child-centric position, what we recognize is that when we can place a child with biological relatives, we should do that. Right. Because kinship networks matter to children. And that is why there has been such a massive swing towards open adoption in this country. Right now, about 95% of adoptions have some level of openness. Because social workers have recognized that Children benefit from connections to their first family, even if they cannot be raised by their biological parents, okay? Right. Number two, we have to prioritize mothers and fathers. If a, if a child placement agency is doing it right, they are going to elevate and prioritize moms and dads who can bring those kids in their home so the child can benefit from the developmental gifts that they receive from both men and women, right? Yeah. And receive the love that they crave. Right? Children crave being loved by a man and woman. And so we should never prioritize a, a single mom or a single dad or a gay couple above a mom and dad because adults are, are couching that in discriminatory language. Garbage. Right. Garbage. Right. The child <laughs> yeah, is yeah, yeah. not you. Okay. That's right. Now, when it comes to 
white drug-free infants in this country, you've got year-long waiting lists of people that want to adopt that baby. But mm. let's be real. When you're talking about older children, special needs children, sibling groups, foster kids, there are not enough married mother-father homes to place those kids. Mm. Part of that is the fault of the church because we have an obligation to bring those children into our homes, but it's hard. Those are very difficult placements. It will upend your life, okay? And mm. I understand why people don't want to do it because it is going to cost you. Right. The kids are worth it, right? Right. So now you get this, this, okay, what about that situation where the kid either has to stay in foster care or is languishing in the orphanage? Are you saying that a gay couple, that, that they're better off in the orphanage than with a gay couple? And so to that, I say, well, we, we pose that in hypotheticals a lot. Um, and right. oftentimes that is the exception. Remember we talked about like the, <clears throat> yeah, yeah. the, the exception. This is the adoption exception, right? This is the gay parenting exception. And so I, I believe it deserves a valid response. Okay. But recognize it is the exception and right. you need to make laws based on the rule. And the rule is kids have a yeah. right to their mother and father. They benefit from a mother and father. Laws should reflect those natural realities. But mm. When I worked at, before I had kids, when I worked at an adoption agency, I was made aware of a case um, of a child in an overseas orphanage with a serious special need. And mm. because I knew the case um, and was familiar with the agency, I knew that several heterosexual couples had passed over this girl's profile because it was going to be a hard, long road. But right. a couple of friends of mine, a lesbian couple said, we could take her. I think we could do that. We've got good insurance. I mean, and they were pretty humble. You know, they're like, we may not be the best parents, but I think we can help. And so they, they decided to adopt her. And they said, but it's gonna be hard. Katie, will you go with us? And I'm like, let me check, yep. Hell yes, I will go. And that was a really tough couple weeks uh, mm -hmm. adjustment in terms of, right. it was a really tough couple weeks. And then the child ended up needing uh, almost yearly surgeries for her condition and very likely wow. would have died if she had stayed there. And um, my lesbian friends had the balls to do what no other heterosexual couple could do. So I understand that there's problems with gay adoption, especially if gay couples think that they have a right to adopt. They don't yeah, right. because nobody has a right to adopt. Children <laughs> yeah. need have the right to be adopted and it's yeah, yeah. them that we are need to be concerned about. So I understand there's cautions around gay adoption, um, but the main solution to that is not necessarily to say gay people can't adopt. It's to say, you should. Hmm. Yeah, yeah, you that's should right. Adopt. That's right. Okay? Yep. Because there aren't enough adults who are willing to take on the hard cases. Um, right. And so that's the answer, you step up. That's right, amen. Yeah, so let's close with that as we always do on this show is the answer is the church. And this is what I always talk about, that if the church wanted to end abortion uh, in a year or so, we could. With every pulpit and pastor acting like an actual shepherd who's ready to defend the sheep in the same way, the only reason that people ask that question of you, of like, well, would you even deny a gay couple the right to adopt a child if that child wasn't wanted by anyone else and wasn't being adopted? And then if you say yes, and we can trick you into saying yes, then I guess you are okay with gay couples adopting people sometimes. And so really you're just harboring bigotry in certain circumstances. I mean, that's what they're trying to get us to admit. But of course the answer is like, well, of course if a kid's gonna die and be completely abandoned, then yes, a lesbian couple would be better 
to adopt them than to be uh, without any stable home the rest of their life. But that's not the solution. The solution is the church being the church, waking up and adopting children and retelling the story of the gospel, which is that we have been adopted by the creator of the universe. Who better to retell that gospel story. Well, Katie, thank you so much for joining the show today. We're going to put a link to your article, your book, encourage people to read more and learn about this, this um, seemingly hard conversation for so many Christians and pastors because we've so abandoned the life of the mind um, and the pursuit of natural law and where it will always ultimately lead us back to, which is Christ himself. So Katie, thank you for bringing your clarity and your giftings to such an important conversation for the most voiceless and working to secure the rights of those who cannot secure their own rights. Yeah, well, you're welcome. Anytime you need a partner and pissing off your followers, I'm your girl. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Thanks, Katie. We'll see you soon. Thanks for joining the show today, guys. Head on over to iTunes, Spotify, YouTube. Give the show a rating and review. Let us know what you think. It really helps us reach more people. If you want to learn more and engage with me online, head on over to sethgruber.com, S-E-T-H-G-R-U-B as in baby boy, E-R. Dot com to sign up for my newsletter, to see my speaking schedule, or to book me for an event for 2022 um, as we're getting into more and more churches and launching pro-life ministries and getting the church to be the church in their local communities and end abortion. Thanks so much for tuning in. We'll see you next week. I'm Seth Gruber, and this is Unaborted. Unaborted.